The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. Welcome to another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. Today, we will be kicking off a short series of interviews in which we speak with colleagues who are affiliated with Cornell's colleague networking groups, also known as CNGs. The CNGs are essentially Cornell's version of employee resource or affinity groups. We ask them about their experiences working at Cornell, engaging with the CNGs, and what their thoughts and ideas are around what belonging at work looks and feels like. My name is Erin Sembrechase. My name is Toral Patel. And you are listening to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. All right. Hello, everybody. Today we are talking with two members of the LGBTQ plus colleague networking group and the men of color colleague networking group. Welcome, Chrissy and Victor. So happy to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Erin. So we'd love for you to first introduce yourself. Give us some insight as to what you do at Cornell and then, of course, which CNG you are representing today. Chrissy, why don't you go first? Sure. Thanks, Erin. My name is Chrissy D'Alfonso. I use she, her pronouns. And my base role at Cornell is the assistant director of the LGBT Resource Center. And I am one of the co-chairs of the LGBTQ plus colleague network group. Excellent. Great. My name is Victor Younger. I'm the director of diversity and inclusion at the Nolan School of Hotel Administration. In terms of the uh, Men of Color Network group, I love being a part of this organization. I'm currently in no official capacity, but I was a part of the group when it was established many years ago, and it's been a pivotal tool for me to connect with others in my community, but also to grow my own professional network and just have a space to where I can have a great conversation with colleagues. Yeah, I'd say you're official. You're an official OG. Uh, Official OG. And let me back up and also say I'd use pronouns he, him, and his. Perfect. Welcome to both of you. We're so excited to have you here. So we're just going to dive right into the first question. As Erin has mentioned during her intro podcast, that we're going to really focus on the term belonging. Uh, and so when we talk, you know, when we've had previous discussions with other guests before, we, we tend to talk about diversity and inclusion. And that's a, those are the two terms that a lot of people hear about, but not when it comes to the, the term belonging. And so just talk a little bit about that. What does the word belonging mean to each of you individually? Go right ahead, Chrissy. Sure. I think for me, the word belonging is kind of that next step in kind of the DEI, the diversity, equity, and inclusion space around this idea of not just seeing yourself represented, not just feeling that you have equitable options wherever you are, but actually feeling like you are being valued for your own unique characteristics, that you are part of that larger whole, not just as a token, but as a a full member of the community. Yeah, it's cool, Chris. That really resonates with me. I think that belonging, we often use the phrase, uh, you know, when you can bring your whole self to an experience. And so my identity of what you can see and can't see is so relevant to who I am. And when I can be that version of myself, then, and people understand, whether they understand it or not, but if they accept that or just know that that's who you're going to get with me. And that's the part that really gives me time to really thrive and be the person that I enjoy being in this space. So belonging is critical for anyone to be able to be their full expression of themselves. 
I just love what you said about the identities that can be seen and not seen. And we talk a lot about this intersectionality and that all of us hold so many different identities. And I love the concept that both of you describe where belonging for me means you can bring all of those identities with you, even the ones that can't be seen or the ones that maybe don't show up in the workplace on a regular basis. But yet belonging means that even those identities are welcomed. Which I think is a good segue to our next question. Maybe you could share with us an example of a time when you yourself felt a sense of belonging at Cornell. I can say for me, I've had many touch points in my journey here at Cornell that I can pinpoint. But speaking from the perspective of the Men of Color Network Group, being in that space and having to sit around a table with other individuals, whether we have a shared experience from terms of our life experiences been or just our life's journey, just knowing that that space was somewhere we could just really not have to put up any pretenses, Mm -hmm. just really talk about things that are salient to my experience as as an African-American male in this country and to hear other perspectives from others that perhaps may not understand that, but we can talk about our own challenges, but also our successes. That has been so important for me, and that's why I'm so thankful for being a part of the Men of Color Network group. Well, and I think what you said about having that space, you just knowing that the space is there, that you can keep the pretenses at the door, and have that space could give some visibility to things that maybe you feel like you have to keep non-visible in certain arenas, but you can bring some visibility to it when you're in that space. And sometimes even like walking in the door and not even having said a word and people there understand what you might be experiencing, right? And that's kind of what I feel sometimes the best when it comes to, you know, I'm a member of the Women of Color Colleague Network Group. And I, you know, I feel like sometimes it's just great to be around other women of color. I don't have to say anything. And yet I know that every single member in that room or in that space knows exactly what I might be experiencing at any given time. Yeah, I think there's so much power in affinity spaces because of that shared experience. There's a difference between being an ally to a community and having an academic or outsider understanding of what someone has gone through versus that in-group community knowledge of, I've understood what your experience has been like. I've gone through a lot of the same things, maybe from a different lens, maybe a very different way, but we still have that same base understanding. It's been really interesting for me thinking about belongingness in my LGBTQ plus identity because I came to Cornell to do queer work. And so queerness is not always a visible identity. I do try fairly hard to code as queer. I have a lot of markers in my appearance that really do identify me to other LGBTQ plus folks. And by right of where I work, I walk into a space and folks know, oh, that's Chrissy. That's the queer girl because she runs the LGBT resource center. And so it's a different kind of experience because I walk into places and that identity is actually like a bonus is actually valued in a way that it's not always seen to be valued or undervalued in a lot of spaces. It's an identity that somebody has to be a little bit more public about. And I think it's a a sort of privilege that I can walk into a space and by virtue of my job also have that identity walk in with me. Chrissy, let me, let me add something to this. You just mm-hmm. triggered something from a visible perspective. So I'm a member of a Greek organization, and one of the things that really speaks to me is part of the, the Divine Nine. If you're from a historically black college or university, mm-hmm. you've heard about the Divine Nine. And I wear those when you talk about signaling when you come into a space. Mm-hmm. The Greek society or the Greek community have been stereotyped or have bad raps for different reasons. However, to know that when I walk into a space, 
on this campus, and I'm wearing those colors for my organization, because we were founded out of this idea that others didn't want to include us in those spaces. And when we wanted to have business organizations, we wanted to connect with community, we weren't allowed. So we birth out of this. So I wear those colors very proudly because mm-hmm. I know from the foundation of why we exist and what the work that we do that's really salient to creating an environment where people can be seen on many different levels. Yeah, that's so powerful, Victor. Thank you for sharing that. You know, what you said, Victor, about some of the history there, that that happened because you weren't welcomed in other Mm -hmm. spaces, so you all had to create your own sense of belonging. So it does then lead to an an obvious question, which is if you were willing to talk about times when that belonging wasn't there for you. Well, I'll start by just saying that when I first came to Cornell, I was in this different role as the general manager for the university dining. That was a a different life experience for me. So here I was a senior member, a black man who was a senior member of this leadership team. And so my responsibility is that I had to build relationships across the campus. And part of that, I remember walking into certain spaces and I was just seen as this outsider. And, you know, even though I was a part of Cornell, I know that my blackness And because of the role that I was in as a leadership person, that I had to also just think strategically about the decisions that we were making and and how the the community would be impacted, but also thinking about for the greater good for everyone. But that was not an easy task because all people saw was my blackness and a black man Mm -hmm. that was portraying some sense of privilege or some sense of authority. And that did not settle well with people. That was a challenge for me for the first few years at my time here at Cornell. Uh, And that really kind of set a different tone for knowing what being on the outside and not belonging was clearly like within my professional environment in this place that I was trying to acclimate myself to. Can I ask how you dealt with that? (sighs) Toral, you know, (laughs) you speak about the piece that you don't see is that my spiritual belief and my sense of just humanity, I recognize Mm -hmm. that. I had to still be Victor, but at the same time, I wasn't doing anything from any malice intent. I wasn't out to intentionally hurt anyone. So really, I wanted to just present information, and I also wanted to be a good listener. So how I dealt with it was trying to be a good listener and to try to share my perspective and get people to see that my intent was to ultimately serve people. Uh, and that was, that's what it was all about. And so I just stayed focused on who I am and what I was set to do. In my time at home, I would pray and just think about some of the pain that was just being dashed my way. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, I recognized that I had a purpose. And my purpose Mm -hmm. was far more than just Victor showing up in the space. I was also creating another space for others to feel included as well. Chrissy, how about you? Any moments where you felt maybe you didn't belong? Yeah, I think a lot of the times where I felt that I didn't belong are actually related more to other identities than necessarily my sexuality because of the work that I do is so closely tied to that particular identity that I experience Mm -hmm. it, I think, very differently than a lot of other folks on campus. But I've had my own experiences with not feeling like I belong. I do read very young. I'm a little over 10 years into my career, and so I'm definitely stepping away from that near-peer role with the students, but I still read very young to a lot of the staff members who are more established on campus. And so sometimes I get put in places, even as the CNG co-chair, I get put in spaces where I'm in a leadership role, and I very much feel that sense of imposter syndrome. I feel that sense of, I don't belong here because other folks are looking at me and they're like, who let the student into the room? And I'm Mm. like, students don't read me as a student anymore, but sometimes staff members do. 
Victor talked about bringing my whole self to work. I'm not going to tone down some of the ways that I look. I have purple hair. I have facial piercings. I have visible tattoos. And many of those things in white supremacist culture of professionalism, those read as either unprofessional or very young. I feel a lot of imposter syndrome about the way that I sometimes present. And also knowing that idea of bringing my whole self to work is very important to me. And so finding the ways that I can balance that and still potentially push past, sometimes I think it's maybe just me, that sense of imposter syndrome, but also that sense of I am very much the youngest person in the room, potentially by at least a decade. What you're talking about, Chrissy, is very much uh, when you have that personal connection to your job, you know, and there really is no weaving it at the door. For some people, maybe they can leave their personal life at the door when they go to the job, and they want to. But for others of us, and Victor, you too, you, you are now doing some significant diversity and inclusion work at the Johnson. So you both sort of have this dual relationship <laughs> where, you know, your identities and your job are very closely connected. What is that like? What is that juxtaposition like where you live your work, work your life? Well, you know, for me, I use this word that when you're working in your purpose, that work, however difficult it may be, at the end of the day for Victor, it's not necessarily work. Because this idea for me that I'm so thankful that my mother and father gave me as a young person in this world is to look at people as humans first, regardless of what you see in front of you, they're humans first. And so I bring that into the space, and I just know that I'm working in my purpose. And again, is no ill intent there. Do I make mistakes? Absolutely. Am I here to work with people? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, I feel like my purpose is to unite people, collaborate people, build community, share successes, share, share challenges, but also find solutions. And all around that, I just kind of focus on all of that as I think about any particular space that I'm into. And even when I'm in my community, with my church, or in my, with my family, with my son and my wife, we always talk about being real. And, uh, and it doesn't always make you feel good, but right. it does create a space to where you know that you're representing the best representation of yourself. I love the idea of being real. And for all four of us, I say there are some identities that we can't hide. They're visible and they're front and center. For me, definitely my culture comes to mind. It puts me in an odd place, right? So what sense of belonging means for me is slightly different because when I come home, I speak a different language. I eat different food. I celebrate different holidays and different traditions. And so being able to like with my colleagues, um, even the Women of Color Colleague Network, or being able to share about my own culture, I think that is what makes me feel belonging and where I feel like I can bring myself. For all of us, we all hold some identities that are definitely visible. And then there are some identities that are invisible. And so just switching gears slightly, I love that both of you focus on your individual relationship within the colleague network groups and how, how much that's helped you. Can we talk a little bit about how colleagues who might hold that identity, how can they benefit from becoming a part of the colleague network groups? We've heard time and time again, as we've done some formal and informal assessment within the LGBTQ plus CNG, that that sense of community is so important to folks. I think especially because that one is sometimes harder to see, young professionals, people of color, those are more visible identities. You can pinpoint other folks outside of your unit that you might want to connect with. 
But when sexual orientation and gender identity are sometimes very invisible, that opportunity to have those structured spaces where you can go and know that you're going to be in community, in affinity with other queer folks is really important that you're in a space where you understand it's not just that everybody means well and wants you to feel like you belong, but that everybody else has had the same experience and you can walk in that door and feel that sense of comfort of everybody else here gets me. If I'm having a hard day because of something that happened to me at work, I can talk about that. And Mm -hmm. it's not just like a, yes, I hear you from a sympathy point of view, but like, I feel that deeply for you. I feel that sense of compassion and that sameness amongst the group. Yeah, I agree with you, Chrissy. I know that one of the cool things about when COVID happened, you know, it opened up this whole venue like we're doing today of having virtual conversations. And I know with our network group, we have people participating from New York City, people Mm -hmm. that are participating from home. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of meeting people where they are. And that's the other benefit of, of, of having this space where the network group, it's an extension of just beyond the physical space, even though the physical space is so important because then you can sit across from someone and you can have these great conversations. But I also value how you know, we've been able to broaden the connection for many men of color across campus. And, and I'm hoping one day that any person that arrives from a professional perspective that arrives on this campus, that I don't know, there is some type of, I don't know the right word is bonus, but how do we immediately get them connected to the men of color network group as part of your onboarding? As, I mean, not, not just to say you're onboarding, but it's even more than that. It is almost not a mandate, but it's really, here's this mm-hmm. resource. Here's this resource that is so valuable to giving you your immediate community and that it is a part of you developing your professional and personal element of who you are that's going to make you successful at this institution. And I firmly believe that because so many conversations have happened within those spaces that we've solved problems when we heard something like, yo, wait a minute, that happened to you? Mm-hmm. Really? Yep. So we got other agents and advocates and people mm-hmm. in certain positions that now we hear that, that we can go back and just have some other conversations that perhaps mm-hmm. you didn't even think that was even possible. I'm not saying it may not change everything, but we want to be the voice that also you don't feel like you're living this in isolation. And that's the thing. We want people to move from this idea of how Cornell can easily put you in a sense of isolation just because of the way it's structured. Yeah, I think that Victor makes some really good points around onboarding and even in recruitment, you know, the ways that we can start to weave in the CNGs because that visibility is so helpful to see oh, there's going to be a space for me when I get to campus. If I'm considering Mm -hmm. moving to Ithaca and working at Cornell, there are going to be people that share my identity. There are going to be folks where I can have at least once a month go to a space where everybody understands me. And that's happened on a couple of occasions. There are certain times where somebody is thinking about joining the Cornell community. And we've gotten emails because they want to hear about what the community is like on campus, what our experience has been. And I think the more that we can have that visibility and the more that we can have that role, it helps show folks who are coming from diverse backgrounds that, yes, there will be a space for you when you get here. I think you both hit on so many key things there because I've been a longtime member of the Disability Colleague Networking Group. And what you said earlier, Christy, resonated it. That's also an identity that's not always obvious mm-hmm. or visible. And so it makes it even more important to make the group as visible as possible yeah. on this campus so that people will come to us. Because there's no way, unfortunately, to find everybody, right? It makes it all the more important what both of you are saying about in onboarding as a university. And that is something that we definitely talk to the people who do onboarding about. Mm-hmm. 
make this a standard part of your script that these networking groups exist because then that shows a commitment on behalf of this institution as an employer that this group exists. But then I think also just, again, that space of knowing if you're having a challenge or a problem, that may be a group of people that you can talk to about it beyond your own work unit and maybe get some suggestions, some help. And if nothing else, just some empathy. Just some empathy that, yeah, you're not alone. Let me add one more layer to that, if I could. Yeah. I was asked to be a part of a search here on campus, and the initial search ended up being a failed search. The person of color did not accept the position. And when I went back and I talked to my colleague, I said, did someone that looked like this person sit down and have a conversation with them just to give them a perspective that perhaps uh, wasn't being shared with them? And they said, no. I said, well, I want to offer myself as a resource. Mm -hmm. And so I had an opportunity to speak with the next candidate. And we we had a very casual conversation. And to me, the intentionality behind sitting down with someone that's not necessarily connected to wherever you're applying for, and just to be that resource and to have that authentic conversation to talk about different things about the university that perhaps no one would know, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, you're sharing it from that shared experience potentially, Mm -hmm. I thought was extremely beneficial. So I go back to the resource groups and network groups and say this. Not only are we resources, but I think when you're hiring for other men and women and different affinity groups around campus, we should be a part of that extension of the intentionality of Mm -hmm. saying, hey, there's a person from the resource group that we're going to connect with you to just have a conversation. Trust me, I think that can be the game changer when we talk about the intentionality of bringing more black and brown people to this institution. I agree with you, Victor. And I think everything that you mentioned about the community, all that on campus, I think the other component that colleague network groups can add, especially to potential new employees, is this connection to the community outside of Cornell too, right? So if somebody is relocating to this area, they've never lived in this area, they don't know anything about it, to move your entire family and your entire life over, that's a huge decision that somebody has to make, especially when they already have a job, which you know now we know unemployment rate is low. We know that's happening across the board. And they already have comfort where they are. They know the area. They have friends, potentially have family in the area. So in order for them to relocate, that's a huge decision that somebody's making. And so even just being like resources or providing resources of what's available for them outside of just even the the immediate Cornell community, I think is just as important. When I first moved here, the two things I wanted to know were, where's the closest Indian grocery store? And where is the lady that's going to be able to thread my eyebrows, right? Like, where can I find that individual? If had I come in for an interview at Cornell, would I ask that of anybody that interviewed me? <laughs> no, I I would never ask that, right? But if I had an opportunity to meet with a fellow woman of color, could that have definitely come up in our discussion? Oh, I can guarantee you 100% that probably mm-hmm. would have come up in my discussion, right? So I think this connection, not only to having an affinity here on campus, but even what's available outside of campus within our immediate area as well, I think is just as important. I think, you know, what you're all talking about, too, is so critical, which is the things that keep people here, often beyond just your own job. They're going to be about the community, about your experiences 24-7, literally. And Chrissy, you touched on this earlier when when we asked you about times when you maybe haven't always felt a sense of belonging. You talked about how sometimes it hasn't even been because of your sexuality. It's been because of other identities. And, And we know that. We know that you guys represent specific CNGs, but I'm sure in the men of color group, there's also people who identify as LGBTQ, right? Certainly in the LGBT, there's people that identify as people of color, and, and the list goes on and on. 
And we also know, unfortunately, at Cornell that according to different staff engagement surveys and whatnot, that people who represent any of these identities are not having that same sense of belonging and inclusion at this university. Where do the CNGs fit in terms of being able to recognize it? Yes, you have members of your group that have come to your group because they identify with that identity, but they hold other identities too. They hold intersectional things, other things that might be contributing to having a decreased sense of belonging. How do you see and sort of make space for that and recognize that so that people really can't bring, quote, their whole selves to the CNG, too, not just the work? So I think this sort of answers this question and also goes back to something that we were talking about a minute ago around this idea of raising issues, because it can be really valuable to do that within the CNG. Mm-hmm. And I also think that we are headed in a direction of a lot better partnership amongst the CNGs, which I also think is so valuable from an intersectional standpoint and a, a cross-collaboration standpoint. When we're thinking about raising issues within one community, bringing that to the larger CNG leadership and having conversations about how is this affecting groups across identities. We've had conversations around workplace satisfaction and ways that we as the CNGs could be partnering together to hear that more broadly across the CNGs and then start to work together more intersectionally so that we are both hearing things and then also creating spaces so Mm -hmm. that we can have spaces that are more intersectional. There are issues within certain communities, and I'll speak for my black community, at least from Victor's perspective, if you will, that there are certain things that we haven't talked about in terms of homophobia and and other isms, Mm -hmm. if you will, that show up in our community that historically have kept people from feeling to be included based upon color, but that other identity, they dare not share those identities. Mm -hmm. Where I think we have advanced our information, our knowledge is that we are much more understanding and clear as to that salient part is a part of everyone's experience. Whatever it is, that should be included or brought into the space so that person can be their full representation of themselves. I say that to say that it's also important for us within our own network group is to continually educate one another because we all don't know the things that we just don't know. And we all need to continue to challenge ourselves to just make sure that we are being as inclusive in our own community when we think about the own differences that perhaps we have that exist in this space. And that we talk about it out loud. We talk about it in terms of creating a space of inclusivity that requires for us to be very transparent about certain things that perhaps we are making sure that we're keeping our eye on the inclusivity of what the affinity group is all about and knowing that there are so many identities within the context of that, but we welcome all of those identities into into that community. I think that's so critical because one could argue that a downside of having these individual CNGs for these different identities is that it can contribute to that sense of being siloed, as though each group is sort of by themselves dealing with their own things. And there isn't a sense of empowerment in that. There isn't a sense of commodity in that, versus recognizing that there are so many issues that overlap. The experiences are definitely distinct, but the themes and the feelings and things like that overlap, and there's power in the collective. 
and being able to understand that from a collective standpoint, there's some power in that. So it doesn't feel like the men of color's battle is just the men of color's battle and the disability battle is just a disability battle. But no, we see it as very much affecting all of us as a community. And, and when you talk about raising issues, there's going to be more power in raising them together. Yeah, Victor, what you said about continuing our own education, that resonated with me a lot. And and I speak from my own experience. Over the past couple of years, when we had one of our required training sessions, there was a whole question about identifying your own privileges, right? And I think my initial thought and reaction was, what privileges do I have? I am I am a woman and I am a woman of color. I have double minority already. I don't ha- I don't hold any privileges. And then as I went further through that training, I realize, you know, as if I break down each of my identities, that there are some identities that I hold that actually definitely I have privilege in those identities, you know, my education level, the fact that I work at Cornell University is a privilege that I hold in this area. Then as I kind of went through my own learning, I realized that even my initial reaction and my initial thought was I don't have any privileges. And yet, and I realized that no, you know, I'm going to take that step back. I do actually have some privileges that I've never thought about. Because some of these other identities that I hold are, are such salient identities. But again, that's because I had to continue that education and go through that process. So I'm going to tie that actually into my next question for both of you. And maybe briefly talk about individuals that don't hold the identities for your individual CNGs. How can they potentially become allies for these groups? The thing that immediately comes to mind for me is intentionality around language. And we talk a lot, both in my office and I think across campus, around inclusive pronouns. But it doesn't just stop there. It's how we can be more intentional in our language across the board. Cisgender and heterosexual normativity is really deeply embedded in our language around greeting groups of people with gender language of hello, ladies and gentlemen, instead of greetings, esteemed guests and colleagues. The ways that we make assumptions about who someone's partner might be or potentially what pronouns someone might use. Being more intentional about thinking for a moment, who does this language include or exclude can be really powerful to create spaces where those folks can feel seen and feel valued. Well, Chrissy, there's nothing I can add to that. There's just one point in the current community where I am within the S.C. Johnson College, there's an opportunity to be more intentional around uh, the Asian community. How do we create spaces to where we're being very inclusive and understanding that our culture, our domestic perspective is different from international perspective? And I'm citing that community because it's a large contingency of our population. You know, I think educating ourselves and understanding our blind spots with that and just owning that And that could be for anything, just owning that, you know, I have a blind spot with this, and this is an opportunity for me to seek out ways to be intentional about including or to be more inclusive around understanding the cultural nuances that show up in my classroom or that show up in the workshop, or or how do I create a space to where an individual will feel more included within the conversation? And it's not all from a domestic lens or Western lens, if you will. And, and that's part of what Victor has challenged a lot to just recognize, how do I do that in an intentional way? And once again, I will say this. I do not get it right. I do not get it right. I'm trying and I lean in with my own discomfort because I recognize I don't get it right. But I know that it's important to make sure I'm giving it my best effort. And people do appreciate that. And and they're more forgiving and more empathetic when it is that you perhaps fail in trying to do that. 
Yeah, and they're more willing to call you into a conversation and say, hey, Victor, this one just didn't quite hit it. <laughs> and that's a learning opportunity for each of us that if you create that space where people feel that they can come have a conversation with you, right? Where they can come tell you if you unintentionally said something or did something that really landed on them in not the right way, that you've created a space where you made it comfortable for them to come tell you that. So then you can then make the changes for future meetings or whatever the case may be. I think that that's key. Intentionality doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be big, big gestures. It could be something small that you could do. Like Chrissy, you mentioned the pronouns, right? Or, or just changing the way you greet somebody in a large meeting. It doesn't have to be a giant change that you've made instead of just, just using the two words. Instead of ladies and gentlemen, you said esteemed guests and colleagues. You changed two words there. And that can make all the difference in the world. I don't know how many times I've said you guys. Hey, you guys. Same here. Yes. cannot imagine how many times mm-hmm. I've said it. But <laughs> I'm aware of that. And I still slip up knowing that that's a common statement that can easily flow right out of my mouth. I also recognize I have to continue working on that. I also think there's value when we catch ourselves that we, mm-hmm. we correct ourselves. I work in an LGBT resource center. I talk about gendered language all the time. I still, I grew up in New England. I still say you guys sometimes. But if I catch myself and model that like you guys, I mean everyone, showing that vulnerability, showing we're humans, we're going to make mistakes. And the intentionality, we talk a lot about impact versus intent. Impact is always going to be a very important piece of that puzzle, right? We can never erase the impact just because somebody had good intent. And if somebody is coming from a place of genuinely good intent, having that call in moment or modeling that vulnerability of, I am working on this, there is still work to do, Mm -hmm. but I am coming from a place of care and compassion of wanting to be better can make such a difference. I like that you use the word and in between those two sentences there, because whenever I've talked about intent versus impact, you know, I say as human beings, we tend to own our intention and that's where we focus, but it's extremely hard for a lot of people to own both, right? So it's the and piece that though my intention was good at the same time, I can understand how the impact was not great, right? Like the negative impact that my words had. And so I think the and is so important here that you can have great intention, and still have a negative impact, right? And, mm-hmm. and how do you own both? Yeah. Well, I think part of it is how many times do we hear, or maybe we started ourselves, oh, well, I didn't mean it. Yes. And that's the yep. end. That's yeah, not yeah. really the end. There's more to that. Let's talk about it. That's a little quarter of the battle. Yes. That you're acknowledging you didn't mean it. That's hardly enough. We have now identified a new learning edge. Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. <laughs> You know, Chrissy, when you talk about those steps, yes, it's true that they seem like they're small steps. But as we all just talked about, habits. People have formed habits around language. People have formed habits around how they see things, their biases, whatever it is. That's an awfully hard thing to break. And it does take mm-hmm. a lot of concerted effort on all of our part to do it. Um, no matter how woke any of us may believe we are, There's still a list of things that we have to spend more time, like both of you talked about, more time really breaking those habits and rethinking things. I am so blessed to have an accountability partner in my home that calls Mm -hmm. me on my stuff all the time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and I have learned to embrace that Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that I'm sorry. You know what? You know, put a period on that to say, oh, you acknowledge it and you own it. And then that's all. And then let's see what you're going to do differently. What are you going to do differently? I will tell you, I love my accountability partner. 
holds me accountable to things that I think has made me a better human being. So I'm fortunate to have that. If you can find an accountability partner, which you know that love is behind what they're doing when they give you that feedback, that is also very comforting to have as well uh, in anyone's life, you know, in and out of that, out of our professional and or personal space as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think an accountability partner who wants to be that for you, and that it's not an added burden, but it's part of what they want to do, right? I mean, I'm sure all of us have had experiences, because we are so visible with our identities, that people might start to see us as the expert of everything, right? And start to come to us to shock themselves or to shock, well, Chrissy, how would the LGBT community feel about this, as if you can speak for all because of your expertise? So that's another, I think, a dilemma that we hold, right? That we have to juggle that sometimes. And it's hard because you want to do good and you want to do right. But what do we want people to know and understand about how to engage in this, right? How to find our way, figure out our learning opportunities. It's easy to say to do it, but it's a how. How to do it in a way that we feel like we're not hurting our community more. I think it's something that I think Victor and Chrissy both said. It's, it's maybe the word intentional. I know still it doesn't get to like the detailed how to do it, but just being intentional about it, I think is the answer to how, right? It's purposeful, being purposeful, looking at, at things that you're doing, say, for example, in a work setting, like Chrissy said, when you're planning the meeting, what are different things that you can look at that maybe you haven't thought about before? dietary restrictions or how you're addressing the invitation or how you're addressing the crowd when you're making the speech. What does the closing look like? Those kinds of things. So maybe intentionality behind it and being purposeful could potentially lead the way. One of the things that's also come up in the LGBTQ plus CNG specifically recently is this idea of being the resource for all of campus, being the visible LGBTQ plus thing. So a lot of people come to us and Thinking about, I think, that intentionality and encouraging outside entities to do the work and allow the experts, the content experts, quote unquote, to provide feedback on that work, but that the allies, the folks from the outside are doing some of that base work to begin with, coming from a good intention saying, I am doing this with care. And also I understand that you may tell me I am wrong. I am open to that. But here is a starting place that I am giving you versus coming to one of these groups that does education, one of these groups where a lot of us are potentially holding minoritized identities and saying, hey, please do this work for me. There's a really big difference between I have some content that I would like you to review for inclusivity and please create inclusive content for us. I think you hit the nail on the head right there. Very well put, Chrissy. Thank you. So I'd love to hear just final takeaways that you really would love for people to take away from this. I think when we're thinking about folks like managers, leaders, to really be aware of what these colleague network groups are and publicize all of them as widely to employees as possible and really encourage that engagement. Mm Mm-hmm. I think from our CNG, we've seen different types of engagement from our members, folks who are almost like sneaking away from work to get to our meetings to find that space that's really important to us versus the folks who've been encouraged to participate by their leadership who've said like, this is a really important part of your professional life, your professional journey and development. We encourage you to participate in these groups. The framing can be so, so important. 
Yeah, I agree with that, Chrissy. I think the framing of it is so important. And I think, again, going back to policy procedure and or how do we establish a foundation that has intrinsic value but is authentic. And I use that word somewhat loosely, being authentic, doesn't always come natural to particular policy and procedures. However, if we are intentional about creating a platform to where these network groups, as we are learning, are extremely valuable, resourceful, in so many ways that can support the professional and personal development for the Cornell community and beyond, really it is a platform that we really want to continue to lift up and to make sure that people are aware of these resources that are available and are very welcoming to people to be a part of their, their resources, if you will. Absolutely. And I think what you both just said really highlights, yes, we have the groups and that's great, but to have leadership and managers and employees promoting the groups is really the difference, taking it that step further. You know, these groups serve a vital purpose to our whole community. You might want to be part of one of them because it could be really good for you and pretty amazing for the institution. And I'll say this, we do have to meet people where they are. Like, there are certain communities intrinsically, like some of our athletes and the coaches and things, you know, they're so in their bubble. If you don't go to them and meet the coaches and say to them, hey, we are part of a network group of many that are available to you. And that sparked a conversation. Now we're going to talk to the, uh, the fencing team. You can really build networks by being intentional about going to places to where typically you know they're not there because they just have a different experience because of the way it's structured. So we do have to step out of our own space and go to those spaces and meet people where they are. That's a really good point, but because there's also, yeah, there's something that we've heard over the years that depending on what your job is, whether you're exempt or non-exempt, you know, hourly or not, it can really impact the opportunities that you can take part in. So I think you make an excellent point that as network groups, we have to get creative about how we are interspersing ourselves throughout campus and going to people so that they can still partake in that opportunity and see there's something for them. And that becomes even more important now that we have a lot more remote workers and hybrid workers, right? And that's something I want people to take away too, that you all are there for them too. It's not just about a physical bricks and mortar. The space can be virtual, not just physical that we provide. Yeah, the LGBTQ plus CNG, so many of our members were starting to join us virtually. And we have folks who are fairly involved from New York Tech Campus, from Cornell in Washington. And so finding that balance of still having online engagement, we're probably going to keep our monthly meetings on Zoom in perpetuity. And so now we're starting to schedule in more events that are happening in person as well, but still keeping those base online engagement opportunities and trying to build an online space where we can actually be social and connect with one another outside of just those monthly meetings. And I think that that could address something Victor brought up earlier, which is, you know, or actually it was you, Christy, who said how there might be some people who aren't able to be open with their work unit, that they're taking time to participate. And we don't want that, but that is still a reality that we have to take into consideration. They may be the ones who need these groups more than anyone. So, you know, creating a virtual space could allow people to, to be able to, quote, sneak away a little bit more comfortably. Yeah. Well, this has been an absolutely amazing conversation, Victor and Chrissy. And Aaron, I want to thank both of you for joining us today. Every time we talk, I feel like I come away with something new. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for the invite. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having us. It's been wonderful.
Wow, Erin, what an amazing conversation we just had with Victor and Chrissy. What do you think? Yes, definitely, Toyle. It really was. I mean, we know about the colleague networking groups, you know, since we our office supports them. But still, I learned a lot and reflected on a lot because they happen to be CNGs that I, I'm not a part of, right. you know. So it was really interesting to hear their perspectives. Um, you know, and I have to say, I think one of the things that struck me in particular was I really appreciated when they talked about how being in a CNG and the members provide access to, I think one of them used the term agents of change, sort yeah. of this access to agents of change and advocates, so that you don't have to live in isolation if you're, if you're having a hard time. So coming together with people who don't necessarily work in your office, but who share an identity and experience really help, I think, somebody to not feel like they're alone. Oh, maybe somebody else has gone through something similar, and I can talk to them about it without any real fear of repercussion because they don't work with me. (laughs) You know, they don't work in my office, right? And so just having that sense of support, I just appreciated how they talked about that. Yeah, and I and I think you and I have talked about this multiple times, but is this idea that we can kind of go into that room and because the the individuals in that space also hold similar identities as you, you don't have to necessarily say anything. Mm-hmm. And yet they all understand, right? And at the same time, because of of that comfort, you can actually share more than you probably would ever share with some of your other colleagues who don't share that same exact identity yeah, as you. that's true. But you're right. You know, I, I feel the same way that I also learned a lot, um, especially knowing that I don't hold either one of those identities. Right. It was it was great to kind of hear their perspectives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and on the flip side, I really appreciated how they talked about, even though they share that particular identity with everybody else in the group, they all have so many other identities that they might not share yeah. with each other. And so I love that they talked about the fact that they, it's also a space to sort of challenge each other in you know a safe space, in a safe right. way, because you know it's coming from a place of genuinely wanting to understand and learn because you already have that rapport and that relationship. But you can also challenge, well, wait a minute, what do you mean by that? Or you actually don't know what it's like to have you know that identity, you know, right. something different, which I thought was a good point. That was definitely a great point. And and the idea that all of us have this intersectionality, that none of us just hold one right. identity at any given time, right? We don't walk into a space as just a woman today yeah. or just, a, you know, or just a minority today or whatever that is. And so I think that was a, a great point that they both made. Um, the other thing that both of them talked about was kind of living the work that they do, that though they hold this um, these roles in, in the colleague network groups, they also do this type of work for a living and how some of that might intersect with each other as well. Yeah. And I think a lot of us also are, live in that similar circumstance. Many people, most people, I'd like to think, are, are personally invested right. in their work, but not everybody is personally attached to it. And, you know, that's a whole other level yeah. of investment when you're actually personally attached. You know, certainly Chrissy is. You know, running the LGBT Resource Center. Certainly Victor is is a man of color who's trying to coordinate major diversity initiatives. You're not just invested, you're attached. And that brings both opportunities and challenges. Well, I'm excited for talking to the rest of our colleagues and the other CNGs. I I think that we're going to keep having really interesting conversations and really learning a lot. Yeah, I think we're going to find similarities and some differences amongst the the CNGs, and I'm excited to kind of have those conversations as well. Thank you all for listening. This podcast is a production of the Department of Inclusion and Belonging in collaboration with the Cornell Broadcast Studio. 
Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and submit a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us and the show. For latest updates on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging at Cornell, be sure to visit diversity.cornell.edu. My name is Toral Patel. And my name is Aaron Stambushes. We would also like to thank our co-producer and sound engineer, Bert Odom-Reed, as always, for making us sound wonderful each and every episode. Thanks, Thanks Bert. Bert. Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Inclusive Excellence Podcast.